This evening, congregation, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 55 this evening. I'm going to be reading the entire chapter, but our text for this evening's message is taken from the first five verses. Hear then the word of the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness of the peoples. A leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briars shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord, congregation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you do when your world comes crashing down around you? When all your dreams turn to ashes, everything that you hoped for, everything that you had invested in for the future, comes to nothing. What do you do? Where do you turn to? Everything that you thought would bring you success and happiness, that would make life meaningful and fulfilling, gone. Gone. Everything has just become another dead end. 
That's the situation facing Israel in Isaiah's prophecy. If you're familiar with the prophecy, the first 40 chapters, in fact, talk about the Lord's impending judgment against his people Israel. They could hardly believe it. After all, they're, they're the people of God. They're Abraham's seed. But they had engaged in idolatry. They were wayward. So the Lord sent his servant with that terrible burden. Judgment is coming. Your beautiful temple that you took so much pride in, the place where you worship, the place where you brought your offerings, leveled. Your home's destroyed. The young generation that you took so much pride in, carted off to a foreign land as slaves, in chains. Where would the future be? What about God's promise to bring deliverance to his people? I mean, hadn't the Lord said that already from the very dawn of history that he was going to deliver his people and through his people Israel, he was going to bring salvation to the whole world? And now they're sitting in ashes? But then, in chapter 40, comes the announcement. Comfort. Comfort my people, declares the Lord. Speak peace to Jerusalem. It is the announcement from a king to prepare the way for a servant. Flatten the hills. Make straight what formerly was crooked. Because I am going to bring deliverance. I am going to rescue you. I am going to bring salvation to a people who thought there was no salvation, there was no future for them. How would he do that? He said, behold my servant. I will send my servant, and we read later on in chapter 53, of course, that well-known chapter, that that servant was going to bring salvation by offering himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. He'll be led to the slaughter. He won't rebel against it. He knows it's the will of his father. He knows that he must do this to redeem his people. He will make his place among the dead. But from that will come salvation. The Lord will see the death of his servant, the offering, the sacrifice for sin, and he will be pleased with it. He will accept it fully, and he will say there is now forgiveness. So that in chapter 54 comes the announcement of evangelism. He tells his people that because of the work of the Redeemer, you are to enlarge your places. You are to pull up your tent stakes. You are to enlarge your tents because all the nations will be brought to you. All the people of the earth will come to know that salvation is of the Lord. The covenant God of Israel. And that brings us to our text tonight. The great invitation. The great invitation to you, to the world around you. The Lord says, come and delight yourself in the richest of food. So I want to ask the question tonight, who, first of all, is invited? And then secondly, 
What are they offered? What does this invitation entail? And then thirdly, on what basis can the Lord make or offer this invitation to those who will hear? Those three considerations in verses 1 through 5. So first of all, who is invited? Is this invitation to feast, to delight yourself in the richest of food? Is this for the rich, the powerful, the movers and shakers of society? Is it for the self-righteous? Oh Lord, I thank you that I am not as other men. I have kept myself pure. I have kept myself righteous. Is that who this is for? No. Is it for the self-satisfied? The content? No. He says, come. He doesn't just say, come. Boys and girls, he says, come! It is the language of the street vendor. Or if you will, if you're at a ball game, and you have those vendors walking up and down the aisles, carrying all their baggage. Come! Take! Eat! That's the sense in which this announcement is made. In other words, pay close attention, boys and girls. Pay close attention, people of God, to what the Lord is announcing. Come. Who? First of all, everyone who thirsts. Everyone who thirsts. Of course, we know that thirsting is a common biblical metaphor for a spiritual appetite. That inner longing, the deepest desire of the heart. For what? For God. For righteousness. The Bible says over and over that God created us with a desire for him. Think of Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. A verse that's commonly overlooked in terms of its significance and understanding who we are in relation to God. The Koholeth, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, says in 3.11, And God has placed eternity in man's heart. Meaning that the things of this world, all the endeavors we're engaged in, work and business, family, possessions, money, all the pleasures that we experience here on the earth, they can never fully satisfy the deepest longing of the heart. The deepest longing of the heart is for God and God alone. The nature of idolatry, of course, is to try to find God's substitutes, God replacements, but they will always leave us empty. They will always be, to use the language of Ecclesiastes, they will be vanity. A vapor that rises, a mist that's here for a while and is gone. God designed you for himself. Come, everyone who thirsts. And of course, maybe you're thinking of Jesus' public ministry. You think of the story that's told in John chapter 4 when Jesus and his disciples are traveling through Samaria. They come to the well of Jacob. It's noon and lo and behold, there's a woman there. You say, well, so what? Well, it's very rare to find someone there in the middle of the day. When you get water, you go in the morning or you go in the evening when the temperatures are cooler. 
very strange to find this sole woman, solitary woman here at the well, and Jesus strikes up a conversation. She thinks she's doing a favor for him by saying, well, let me, let me get you some water in one of the containers I have here. Let me draw some water for you. And Jesus says, but I have water for you. That if you drink of that water, you will never thirst again. And she's intrigued. And Jesus says, why don't you bring your husband over to talk about it? Well, I don't have a husband. No, that's right. You've had several husbands, and the man you're currently with is not your husband. He touches upon a nerve, but it becomes an avenue through which Jesus ministers the gospel. If you drink of that water, you will never thirst again. Or later on in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And the people are amazed. Who wouldn't be in a day before grocery stores, in a day before refrigeration, to have this roving prophet multiplying fish and bread? We would follow him too. And Jesus says to them, finally, you've only followed me, you've only come near to me because I keep your bellies full. Do not hunger for the bread that will not satisfy, rather hunger for the bread that comes from above. He says, I am the bread that comes from above. Just as Israel fed from the manna sent from heaven by God, so you are to feed in faith upon Jesus Christ. And he says, unless you eat of my body, unless you drink of my blood, you have no life in yourself. And the people are repulsed. You have that tragic statement about many who turned away from Jesus at that point. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, well, what about you? What about you? And they say, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? For you alone have the word of life. Or John 7, verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Or when Jesus preached that great sermon on the mount, he said what? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Those who hunger those who thirst. And then also, who is invited? Those who have no money. Isn't that a strange statement? You who are penniless, you whose pockets are empty, come and buy. People don't buy that way. But that's precisely the point. You come acknowledging to Jesus Christ your spiritual poverty your spiritual emptiness, the fact that he alone can give to you what you need. It says, come, come. It's not for the self-satisfied. It's not for the self-righteous. It's not for the man who says, Lord, I thank you that I am not as other men. It's for the man who, who hides in the closet and says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
And that's why Jesus begins the Beatitudes by saying, blessed, happy, makarios is the word, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who acknowledge their spiritual poverty. And you understand, of course, that the critics of Christianity will look at that, they'll hear that message, they'll hear me speaking about it and say, see, this is why we despise Christianity. Because Christianity is just a crutch for weak people, poor people, hungering and thirsting people. Now, we want this great American ideal of the self-sufficient person, the self-made person. We love, we honor, we idolize the self-made person. We want our leaders to be self-made people. We don't want weak, impoverished people. But the way of the kingdom is much different. Come, you who hunger and thirst. Come, you who have no money. You put your hands in your pockets and there's nothing there. Come, buy and eat. Secondly, what is offered in this great invitation? Three things, if you notice carefully in our text. Three things are offered. Water, milk, and wine. Come. Come to the waters. Water refreshes. You think of yourself in a situation where you've been walking through a desert and your throat is parched, your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth. You would do anything for just a drop of water to refresh you. And Jesus says, the way of the kingdom of heaven, the way of the gospel, is the refreshment of water. You see what water does to lifeless creatures. It brings life. Come to the waters. And then come. By milk. Milk is a staple of life. Milk is that which nourishes. It also speaks of abundance, of blessing. The land of Canaan, of course, was described as what? The land flowing with milk and honey. Come, says the Lord. Come to the to the banquet where there's not just water to refresh, there's milk that nourishes, that satisfies that strengthens. And by wine. (laughs) Wine, not grape juice, wine. Yes, the Bible speaks approvingly of wine. Wine is symbolic of the presence of the kingdom. The Old Testament is full of examples where wine is associated with gladness, celebration, with feasting, An anticipation of the Lord bringing a great feast among his people is described as a feast overflowing with wine. Again, not to encourage drunkenness, but wine symbolizing blessing. It's no coincidence, by the way, that when Jesus performed his first public miracle, he turned water into wine. Again, he did not turn water into grape juice, he turned water into wine. 
What was the significance of that? Among other things, we could say that it was Jesus' inaugural announcement that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. The kingdom is here in its celebration, in its glory. And you recall how the critics of Jesus and his disciples poke fun of of Jesus' disciples and wanted to know why they were so gluttonous, why they were feasting and drinking, where John the baptizer's disciples were fasting. Do you recall how Jesus answered that criticism? He always had these critics eyeing his every move, watching, not only in terms of what Jesus was teaching, but what his disciples were doing. Why do your disciples feast like they do? We fast. Good Jews that we are, we fast. And Jesus says, as long as the bridegroom is present among you, you feast. You feast. Now, our celebrations may last for a few hours, maybe a whole evening. But in the ancient world and in many cultures today, weddings are celebrated with week-long feasts and you eat and you drink in abundance. Jesus says when the bridegroom is here, that's what you do. But a time is coming when the bridegroom will be taken away. Then you fast. Again, it's no coincidence that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and spoke about the sign and seal of the new covenant, he chose bread as well as wine. Wine, symbolizing not only the shed blood of Jesus Christ, but wine that celebrates the coming of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Come to the waters. Come by wine and money, without money and without price. And then in verse 2, there's a serious call to introspection. And it's something we would do well to pay close attention to tonight. You have your Bibles open, look at it. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Do you understand what he's saying? Let me give you my paraphrase, the Paul Ipema paraphrase of this verse. Why are you dumpster diving for your meals when God promises you a feast? Have you ever seen dumpster diving? People opening up the lids on a garbage container behind a fast food restaurant looking for food? People walking the streets, people in the third world climbing over piles of garbage, rummaging through it, looking for bits of food. It's tragic. It's pathetic. It makes you weep. That's the picture I want you to have in mind when you think of verse 2. The Lord is saying, why do you keep looking in the dumpster for scraps, for garbage, for rotten food when I offer you filet mignon, I offer you lobster tail, whatever your favorite food may be. I always think of the experience I had a number of years ago as a child. As many of you know, my father farms, and 
Back in the day, we farmed a lot of vegetables, raised a lot of vegetables that we brought to South Water Street Market in Chicago. And many of the, the truck farmers in that day uh, would bring their vegetables in the middle of the night to avoid the traffic during the day. So as a young boy, maybe 10 years old, I'd go with my father. We'd leave the house at 1 in the morning. By 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, we were there at South Water Street Market. I remember one time sitting in the truck with my father. He was backing up to the loading dock, and the headlights were shining on a number of boxes or crates across the, the alleyway. And all of a sudden, I saw the box move. It shook because someone had been disturbed by the headlights. And I saw a person crawling out of it. Now, I'm a farm boy. And I lived in Beecher for most of my childhood. I see this person crawling out of a box, and I said, Dad, what is this? What's going on? And he said, well, son, that's, that's a bum. Now, today we use the word homeless. In fact, I had a number of people at Linwood Church who asked my dad, why did you tell your son he was a bum? Well, we didn't call them homeless back in the day. They were bums. But that left an impression on me. People live like that, dressed in rags, living in boxes or crates. But that's the picture that Isaiah's painting here. Why are you trying to live your life like a homeless person when God has promised you a banquet? The point being, why are you pursuing things that you think will bring you satisfaction, that will bring meaning to your life? that will give fulfillment, that will satisfy that deepest craving or longing of your life. You think that money's going to do that? You think that physical pleasure's going to do that? You think that the acclaim of other people, popularity, you think that an easy life is going to do that for you? Or the right retirement plan is going to do that for you? Think again. Only the fool thinks that way. In counseling, we talk about if-only statements that really lie at the heart of people's deepest desires. If only I had what? Fill in the blank. If only I had more money. If only I had a nicer mother-in-law. If only my boss treated me better. If only I had this opportunity or that opportunity. Whatever the case. If only... Why do you strive for that which you know from God's word will not bring satisfaction? C.S. Lewis wrote about this many years ago. He said in one of his essays, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. He said the problem is not that our desires are too strong, but they're too weak. They're too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. When I talk about things like this to my students, for example, at Danville Prison, Some of them grew up in Cabrini Green, which many of you may remember, the projects. C.S. Lewis is saying, imagine a, a child in the projects making mud pies and thinking, 
This is as good as life gets, making mud pies in the slum. Or if you're really old enough, you remember the Milwaukee, Milwaukee's, uh, uh, old Milwaukee beer commercial where two, two cowboys or two campers are sitting around a fire, they crack open a can of beer, and what do they say? It doesn't get any better than this. To which I want to say, really? It doesn't get any better than opening a can of beer on a campfire? You've got to be kidding me. C.S. Lewis says, we are far too easily pleased. And I'll simply ask you to think about that and to reflect upon that in your own life. Are you far too easily pleased? Are you someone who is making mud pies thinking, it doesn't get any better than this? Notice verse 3, listen diligently to me. Literally it says, listen Listen. There's this intensifying of listening. And eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. That's the ESV version. The older version, I believe, uses that, the more poetic expression, delight yourself in the richest affair. Why would you go after scraps and maggot-infested meat when God has a banquet for you? The food of Babylon, where the people were going to be held in captivity, was scarce, and it was very expensive. And by contrast, the food that God gives, the food of the covenant, is abundant, freely flowing, and freely given. And thirdly tonight, upon what basis is this invitation made? He says here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. He's thinking there of what? 2 Samuel 7 verse 14 where God promises David that someone, one of his descendants would sit upon his throne forever. Forever. And now? And now you have Israel in ruins? The king taken into captivity, you know the horrible story of what happens at the end with the southern kingdom? The king has to watch his sons be slaughtered in front of him, and then his eyes are gouged out. I mean, they were cruel in the ancient world. So that the last thing that he saw, the last thing he would remember seeing was the slaughter, the execution of his own sons, the future of his dynasty. And then he could see no more. But how can this be? How can this promise be made when the, the nation of Israel is in shambles? Well, he's talking about what the servant of the Lord, great David's greater descendant, would ultimately do. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. So that, behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. He's envisioning the day when the servant of the Lord, by means of his atoning sacrifice, by means of his suffering, death, and resurrection, would enter into his glory. 
and then commission his apostles to go out into the world, making disciples of the nations, calling them to faith and obedience in Jesus Christ. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, For what? For he has glorified you. Again, I like the older version that was more poetic. For he has endowed you with glory. He has covered you, as it were, with glory. That's the future of God's people. That's the invitation that is offered. And it's on the basis of what God has pledged through his son, Jesus Christ. And again, many who heard and witnessed Jesus and his ministry still could not understand how it is that one could reign, one could make his glory known by suffering a humiliating death, the death of a criminal, death on the cross. But is that not the message of the gospel today? Was that not the message that Jesus gave to the travelers on the way to Emmaus. Did he not say, did not the Messiah say that he must suffer and die and then enter into his glory? So it is for us today. Brothers and sisters, my my prayer for you, my desire for you in this message is that upon hearing this message, this invitation, considering to whom the invitation is extended, what is being offered, and on what basis it is offered, that you would say with the psalmist in Psalm 34, what? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is the call of the gospel. Are you listening to it? Not only are you listening to it, but do you believe it? Do you really believe it with your whole heart? Do you believe that what God promises you is so much better than anything that earth can afford, what they can give to you, what they can offer to you? Do you believe that in your heart of hearts? And that what God has designed for you in Jesus Christ is in fact the best that you could ever long for. And that if you partake of it, if you eat of it through faith, that it is the most satisfying, the most gratifying thing that you will know, and it will be a glorious thing. Come. Come, buy, eat, and live. Let us pray. Father in heaven, create in us a spiritual appetite for that which fully satisfies. May we be assured that in Jesus Christ there is water to refresh, there is milk to nourish, and there is wine to make the heart glad. So may we leave here, Father, being assured that what you offer to us is the richest affair. Hear our prayer, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.